You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Hello and welcome to What You Missed This Week. I'm Joe Weisenthal. This is the podcast that has the best and most interesting interviews from the Daily Market Close Show that I co-anchor with Scarlett Fu and Julia Chatterley on Bloomberg Television called What You Miss. Our aim is to take you beyond the headlines and bring you unique perspectives on the week's top stories and, well, those that you may have just missed. It's the perfect way to kick off your weekend. This week, we spoke with Adam Tooze, an economic historian at Columbia University and the author of a new book, Crashed, How a Decade of Financial Crises Changed the World. Tooze, who has created an academic specialty of studying financial collapses, told us what he thought about the ongoing economic crisis in Turkey. Well, it really is, I think, an emerging market crisis. That's how we have to look at this. It has idiosyncratic features. Sure. Erdogan's government is very peculiar. But this is basically a, a, a roaring economic success story from the crisis of 2001 onwards, driven by very large-scale import of foreign capital uh, and into the banking sector since 2009-2010. So this is a classic case of a vulnerable emerging market with a leveraged domestic financial sector dependent on foreign and dollar-denominated uh, funding. Okay. Taking a step back, when you say this is an emerging market crisis, alarm bells are going off in people's heads, especially as person after person has said today, well, we're not seeing that much contagion. Do you expect to see contagion or is this different? Well, this is a structural emerging market. It's structurally like so many others that we've seen. The contagion would be through the markets. It would be through the anxiety that then develops in this entire class of assets. It would be a risk off kind of a move because the drivers of this specific crisis in Turkey's case are really the peculiar politics of Erdogan's regime. People have been saying that Turkey is in trouble for years. The real question is why they haven't been doing anything about it, why they haven't been raising interest and trying to moderate credit. And that's the peculiarity. This is a government which doesn't look like it's playing along. You mentioned that Turkey was this incredible success growth story since uh, Erdogan uh, began in 2002. Yes. So it was the financial crisis that did change the trajectory of Turkey as well. What happened there that, uh, that uh, Turkey kind of stumbled and wasn't able to recover? It really took, took a huge hit. It's one of the hardest hit EMs uh, in 2008, 14% fall in GDP. And it comes back the way many of them did through, domestically, uh, through a domestic credit boom. This is not a sovereign debt story in the Turkish case. Um, this is a relatively robust public sector. It's in the private sector that we see the growth. Public-private partnerships mean there may be some sort 
sort of off-balance sheet public liabilities we don't know about. But this is really a private boom which is now hitting the buffers and which really arguably should have hit them some while ago. There's been a considerable amount really of the benefit of the doubt extended to Turkey, I think many people feel. One of the... uh things that get a lot of countries into trouble is this sort of currency liability mismatch because obviously uh, Turkish banks may owe dollars but the Turkish Central Bank can't print dollars. Similar situations happened in other countries during the crisis but then they opened up uh, currency swap lines so that the Fed could in a sense print dollars for all these uh, struggling private enterprises through the regional central banks. Is there any playbook for a country that's kind of so isolated politically right now Um, with no obvious friends with a lot of money? I mean, you had to be in the privileged inner circle to get a swap sure. line in 08. And Turkey has manoeuvred itself squarely outside that kind of group right now. The obvious place for it to go, you might think, would be the sort of geopolitical antagonists of the West, uh, Russia or China. But neither of them have shown any appetite for this kind of bailout. They do project-based lending. They don't do comprehensive bailouts of somebody's banking system. The, the one place this looks like is an IMF-type package. And whether or not Erdogan's regime is willing to bite that bullet, I think, is a very open question. So if he doesn't, how does this play out? It's, there's no easy solution here. We're going down a pretty dark tunnel. Uh, you could talk about capital controls. In the modern day and age, it might just operate through macroprudential policy on the banking sector, because that's where the risk is. The risk is the most immediate risk is that a big Turkish bank loses its access to short-term funding. And I will say that actually the second biggest lar- uh, private bank in Turkey, their bonds, have absolutely plunged about 10 cents exactly. on the dollar in the past two days. Mm. So and that's what's producing the that. response in Ankara and Istanbul is the central bank has got to do something about that because that's where the fire really starts. A lot of people had said maybe there's a political solution. There can be a political resolution that will allow Erdogan to exit the stage or find an elegant solution. How might that play out? How might that work? Oh, I don't think there's any prospect of a regime change or change of the head of state. We played that out in 2016 and we know that the way that's gone. Mm-hmm. It's quite conceivable there's some deal that can be done with the Trump administration over this pasta. But I think we're now well past the, the realm in which the financial markets need to see some fundamental shift in policy. And that's, it's very difficult to see where that comes from at this moment. Because typically, right, in a lot of these, like we saw in Argentina today, for example, even though it didn't help the currency much, it's sort of a conventional move, a massive yeah. rate hike. Yeah. But we, so far, the Turkish policymakers have been pretty antagonistic towards the sort of traditional things that one might expect a country in crisis And they've developed an entire narrative. I mean, all the way back to the taper tantrum in 2013, Erdogan has been polishing this narrative of the interest rate conspiracy. I mean, he has a kind of uh, backwards economic theory which says that interest rate increases raise inflation. And then furthermore, uh, they are basically a geopolitics oppressive to Turkey and attempting to dominate it. So he has a lot invested in this resistance to conventional policy. All right, so you specialize in financial institutions, and I have to wonder, just going back to that contagion point, you talk about the private Turkish sector. People are worried about that debt on the books of European banks, in particular some in Spain and other peripheral nations, BBVA being one of them. How realistic is this in terms of a concern that could potentially sink some pretty major European banks? Yeah, BBVA, Unicredit, and Paribas were the three that were cited immediately. Of the three, it only looks like BBVA really has substantial skin in the game. And there the problem does look as though it's real. I think BBVA generated something like 35% of its pre-tax profit out of its Turkish franchise last year. So they have a lot riding on this. But it's one big, admittedly big, Spanish bank here. This is not, any, it's not a prospect of a comprehensive eurozone crisis. And all of uh, Turkey's private sector liabilities are kind of Greek-sized. It's 200 billion plus.
class give or take, much of that is not hedged. So it's risky, but we're talking about a Greek-style problem rather than an Italian-style mm-hmm. problem uh, within, within the Eurozone. For, for, Italy, for Turkey itself, this is obviously a huge problem, and this is a huge country, 80 million people. So if the option for Turkey is to just kind of wait it out, because it's not going to raise interest rates, Erdogan has made very clear that that's not what he wants. Um, What's the pain going to be for waiting it out? Who suffers the most? I mean, presumably the companies that borrowed in U.S. dollars uh, and the people who are suffering under rampant inflation. And many people in in Turkey borrow. This is a bit like Hungary in 2008. There's quite a lot of domestic borrowing denominated in foreign currency. All of those people are hit. And then the inflation is going to hit in the second round as the foreign exchange uh, uh, feeds through. And this is an energy-dependent economy. Turkey imports oil, gas, uh, so it's going to... through the cost of living. That's where I think think the questions of domestic political stability really get serious. Real quickly, you mentioned that it's very unlikely that they would ever get a comprehensive bailout from Russia or China. That's not how they do. But does does Turkey have any geopolitical cards to play given the access that they have in terms of airspace, things like that? Uh, for some sort of help from the outside? It's huge. I mean, Turkey, once upon a time, was considered an absolutely vital geopolitical element in NATO's structure. But we're in such a broken world right now that Mm. it's very difficult to know exactly how you cash those chips out. Once upon a time, it would have sent panic through NATO headquarters in Brussels to be in this kind of standoff. Because they are, A, the bloc against Russia, and B, the seal between Europe and the Middle East. And we saw that in the refugee crisis of 15. For Europe's point of view, this is, in a sense, even more important than it is from the point of view of the US, because if they do not have the cooperation of Ankara, it's very unclear whether they can maintain that cordon sanitaire between uh, Eastern Europe and Middle East. Then we turn to Adam's book. He wrote over 700 pages on the 2008 financial crisis and the aftermath, so we asked him to gauge where we are now nine years into a bull market. Just how robust is the US economy and financial system? Well, I think everyone is anticipating some kind of a recession at some point in the next 18 months, two years. That's, I think, common sense. It would also be just true to historical form. We can't go on this kind of it run has to forever. Happen it has point. to happen. I think it's going to be a bout of the flu rather than a heart attack, right? What we had in 2008 was a full cardiac arrest. Uh, the cardiovascular system, the pumping heart, the financial system was, was about to shut down or really was shutting down. And that's a very different kind of problem. I don't see those kind of risks out there in the U.S. economy at this moment. Hard as we try to find the new subprime, it just doesn't seem to add up. We can't fit the student loans or the high-yield bonds with the leverage and the short-term funding that is really what gives you the 2008 picture. People are trying, though. <laughs> Definitely trying. Structurally, though, the takeaway from the book is that there was just all the effort was about propping up the old system virtually yeah. everywhere around the world. Almost nobody had a different idea of how to construct a yeah. new system. So even though we may not have the same leverage, the same financial imbalances, which you detail, it's still the same system. Yeah, this was emergency medicine. No one was talking about long-term fixes for anything. This was about keeping the wheels on the bus, keeping the show on the road, and avoiding another Lehman. Lehman was seen as this catastrophic derailment of policy that had to be prevented at any cost. And then a real caution kicks in. To prevent any further destabilization, we need to take baby steps and maximize discretion. So everything essentially comes down to the political complexion of the administration going forward as to whether or not they're willing to use the huge discretion for 
provided by Dodd-Frank, the regulations, the explanations to the regulations that are really the substance of bank regulations since 2009. All right. Well, some people would argue that should the Federal Reserve or the government had simply said, all right, financial system, collapse and we'll rebuild something afterwards, that that could have been potentially catastrophic that set us back decades. My question is, now that we are not in a financial crisis, that we are not headed for an imminent uh, recession, what ought people be doing in order to transform the system to be uh, better? In well, speaking as a historian, the problem is that the only moment at which America mm-hmm. has gone through a transformation was when it did bottom out. And the question is, namely, 1933. It takes a shock as bad as that. And then remember, that's four years of recession, massive unemployment, and a huge wave of banking crisis hitting New York in 33 that opens the doors to FDR. We didn't get there, you see. And in a sense, we're caught as a result in a perpetual gray zone of makeshift, of reform, without the fundamental energy necessary to drive us into something more radical. We were talking earlier about whether there was any visionary uh, out of the financial crisis. If anyone came up with a creative solution, something that was out of the ordinary, and you said China, explain how that is and whether that would have come regardless of the financial crisis. No, I think the Chinese, Beijing has to improvise a solution. They're crisis fighting too, but the scale of what they do and the, the scale of the decisions they make. I mean, they roll out, for instance, a health insurance program, likes of which the world has never seen before. While America is struggling over ACA, Beijing puts about 800 million people under coverage. 800 million people. Um, And in 2009, they even make this suggestion, and people think they're playing games, but nevertheless, you know what? We ought to have a global currency, an SDR-type system. The Chinese have a vested interest, I think, in actually shifting the parameters of this system and using moments of leverage like that to do it. And they also, I think, have the sustained intelligence in their policymaking system to actually conceive of these plans. That's not an argument for authoritarianism, Mm -hmm. but it is simply one of the virtues of that kind of system. We get that through continuity, and the continuity we got was very conservative. So we may not have the same fragility in the financial system, but arguably we're much more fragile politically. And so we got the TARP vote passed in the U.S., but even that in 2008 was by was barely. And then there were a bunch of kludges in Europe, but they got there. Could you imagine, you know, if we had another significant downturn with the politics of 2018, how much more limited is our crisis fighting capacity? I mean, I don't mean to sound partisan, and I'm really just speaking as a historian, but the future of global capitalism depends on the Democratic Party. I mean, it did in the 1930s, it did in the 1940s, and it did in 2008. The Democratic Party has repeatedly shown, for better or worse, and the left, of course, hates it for this specific reason, the willingness to do what's necessary to mobilize American government for the purposes of ensuring financial stability. It was on their votes that TARP was carried. It was on their votes under a Republican administration that Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac were stabilized. I mean, these are the anchors of the American housing market. No middle-class American owns a house without Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. The Republicans couldn't whip their votes into line to stabilize those institutions. So it really does crucially depend on this one party and its capacity to build the coalitions necessary. And that's very fragile. And of course, they face ferocious opposition from the Republicans who are nothing if not a vote getting, you know, ready. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. 
Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Tooth and claw political combatant. But the parties have changed so much, they no longer resemble what they once did, certainly not in 2008 and certainly going farther. It's one of the great legacies of 2008, that the the hinge between the the globalist elite in the Republican Party, the Paulsons of this world, and the base snapped. It snapped that summer over Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, and they never got it back together again. Paulson finds himself endorsing Clinton in 2016. Chamber of Commerce is out against the Republican candidate. We also spoke with Keith Higgins, the former director of corporation finance at the SEC under President Obama, about Elon Musk's now infamous tweet. We asked him if taking to social media to say, quote, funding secured broke the law and what he would think reviewing the case if he were still back at the SEC. It would all depend on what the facts would show. We we certainly know that the words funding secured were in the tweet. We learned several days later when Mr. Musk posted the fuller statement on the website what exactly he meant by that. And it's really going to be up to the commission uh, and the staff to take a look at what it is, is what's behind that. I'm sure I understand they issued a subpoena to the company. They'll talk to company officials. They'll talk to probably people from the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund who were mentioned there to find out exactly what the nature of the discussions were. I think most cautious people would say that funding secured is probably a little overly optimistic. On the other hand, um, all sorts of commitment letters have conditions and conditionality to them. So it'll, it will really depend on the facts. Is intent an important aspect here? And by that, I'm curious whether, okay, let's say they look into it and they're like, you know what, under no reasonable interpretation could we say that funding is uh, actually secured. But is there a range of options then between, say, you're not supposed to do that versus uh, efforts to manipulate the stock? Exactly. Uh, obviously, if, if there's shown that, that he intended to manipulate the stock, that if there was something that showed that he intended to do this for the purpose of getting after the short sellers, that would be very problematic. Mm-hmm. But there's also the concept of recklessness. And if, if it was determined that he was reckless in issuing this tweet and saying funding secured, that would also be enough to sustain a prosecution if, in fact, it was materially misleading to say funding secured. I'm, in, I'm, I'm intrigued that you brought up that recklessness part because Elon Musk is yes. known to be somewhat free-willing <laughs> when he's on uh, social media. He sure. likes to say that right. he tends to tweet whatever is on his mind. So to what extent will that be taken into consideration by the SEC when they determine whether he went too far in his tweets? Because he kind of just thinks aloud and, and types it up as right. he thinks it. Right. Uh, recklessness is an objective standard. Uh, it won't be. De- it won't be dependent on what Mr. Musk's concept of recklessness is. It's. It's what a reasonable person would think reckless behavior was. All right. So, Keith, you've been uh, advising companies for decades on their securities offerings, and I have to wonder how social media changes the mm. advisory aspects Good of question. being a counsel to big corporations. <laughs> so, from your perspective, how has that changed your view? Right. Well, this tweet is a classic example of how a character-limited form of communication doesn't always do the the job it needs to do to clarify exactly what is being meant and what's being said. If, If 
Mr. Musk's tweet had simply said, I'm considering taking Tesla private at 420 a share. See my website for more details. And then had on the website the full page, that uh, page and a half, whatever, that he put up a couple of days ago explaining exactly what he meant. That would be fine. But it really demonstrates the perils of social media when trying to convey complex information in a character limited format. You know, Twitter is 280 characters now, so he definitely had the space. So I don't think that's going to fly as a potential excuse. Talk to us about the time frame that the SEC operates here, because, you know, again, going back to this sort of social media moment, it's like, what's the next story? What's the next story? Where's the 8K? Where's the whatever? From the SEC's perspective, how, how fast can they act? Well, they're, they're, I'm sure they're moving quite quickly. If, if, if it's true that the subpoena went out, that is pretty quick for an investigation of this type. I'm sh- I suspect they're getting cooperation from Mr. Musk and the, and the company, and they'll, uh, they'll move quickly. I, it doesn't appear... I wouldn't have thought there would be a lot of documentary diligence. They'd probably want to see emails that went back and forth uh, on on possible sources of funding and discussions that happened. So it's not going to be a complex investigation. So I would think they would be able to wrap it up quickly. And quite frankly, I think it would be in the SEC's interest to wrap it up quickly, as uh, obviously as well as Mr. Musk. Keith, what could the potential consequences be for Elon Musk, as well as Tesla and its board, if the SEC does come down pretty hard Uh, in this circumstance. Right. Well, generally speaking, what you would expect in a situation like this, if they found that he had violated the law, you'd expect some sort of a fine and a fine in an amount that would be that would send a message that this is conduct that uh, shouldn't be sanctioned. Uh, You would expect some sort of a cease and desist order saying that he wouldn't violate the securities laws again. But that's about that's the extent of the punishment that the SEC would meet out against Mr. Musk. He, of course, is still facing, I understand, shareholder lawsuits uh, attacking the tweet as misleading, and that could be another fight that he has to front. Yeah, that's a whole different issue there. Absolutely. Keith, how would you advise Elon Musk if if you were advising him right now? If I were advising him right now, he's obviously done the right thing by hiring uh, uh, first-class advisors, at least by, by what I read. He's, he's hired people on to, to, to bring guidance and advice to the process. Uh, he's come out with the statement about what he actually meant. I would urge him to try to settle this thing pretty quickly. The last thing in the world he wants to have hanging over him, if he indeed wants to take Tesla private, is an SEC investigation. You don't want the SEC deposing people at the company, deposing potential funding sources, and otherwise getting in the way of what could be a transformative transformation. Transaction. So uh, I, I think e- even though I'm sure that he doesn't he would hate to admit that he was wrong and I suspect he would never admit in a settlement that he was wrong. I still think if, if he can get a settlement in which he doesn't ha- he, he neither admits nor denies that he ah. was uh, that he violated the law, then he ought to move forward and do that. Then we talked with Peter Wagner, the executive director of the Prison Policy Initiative, about his latest research looking at unemployment among formerly incarcerated individuals. We started by asking how much the odds of unemployment surge for people after they've served time. It's about five times higher. So if you have a criminal record, your unemployment rate is going to be about five times higher than people that don't have a record. That's pretty massive difference. 
Okay, so Peter, what would what would you say to people who say, well, perhaps it's because these people either don't want to work when they get out of prison or are criminally inclined and end up going back to jail, and that is the reason why they are not getting employed? Well, if they go back to jail, then they're not unemployed. But what's really important about our report is that not only did we calculate an unemployment rate of formerly incarcerated people for the first time, we're able to talk really precisely about the fact that people with criminal records want to work. In fact, we found that people that have a criminal record are more likely to be looking for work than people that don't have a job. Okay, so when you look at uh, which industries people who can, uh, who were formerly incarcerated can get into, are there industries that are more welcoming and, and least welcoming, less welcoming, I should say, to this population? I mean, where can you look for some best practices? Well, the best practices, unfortunately, are a little bit hard to come by. But what we have seen in our research is that the jobs that formerly incarcerated people are able to get are often the low-wage, temporary, insecure jobs. And what people need jobs, people who have a record need a job just for the same reason that you or I do, to support our families. And there's really no good reason for us to be making it harder for people that have a criminal record to succeed than is absolutely necessary. What are the biggest misconceptions, Peter, that employers have about hiring people who have uh, been in prison? Employers think that they, can't, that, they, that they shouldn't hire people that have a criminal record. They think that they're not going to become good employees. They don't even give them a chance. One of the things that we talk about in our report is this research that shows that when employers give people with a criminal record a chance, they're actually more likely to become good employees. They're more likely to stay a long time. They're more likely to work hard. These are the things that employers want, but Routinely, employers use bl practice blanket discrimination and just refuse to even review an application where someone says, I have a criminal record. This is one of the most fascinating bullet points uh, in your uh, study, and it cited another research paper that actually there is lower turnover among the previously incarcerated, that for employers who are worried about job market churn, particularly in a tight labor market, that uh, these uh, employees actually stay longer and are less inclined to quit. Is there an explanation for this, or is there a theory to explain why they would be uh, less inclined to quit a job? My theory is that it's loyalty. It's that when an employer is willing to take a chance and do what other employers are not, that employee then returns that mm. favor with loyalty. So, Peter, as Joe was just alluding to, we are in a very tight labor market. I'm wondering whether you're seeing employers uh, take more risks and hire people who do have criminal records when they might not have in the past because they do need workers. I haven't, we haven't seen that in our data because our data is not as new as that. But it looks like, it does sound like employers are willing to give people that have a criminal record a chance when the economy is really tight. But we have to remember that when the economy is good, the last people who are hired are going to become the first people who are fired when right. the economy changes. So if we're going to make a structural change to, make, to allow people that have a criminal record to succeed, we need to do that regardless of what the economy is. It strikes me that there's an opportunity here for the public sector to lead the way. Our producer, Ali Donaldson, was pointing out that California uses, uses prisoners to fight its wildfires. It's something that's been happening for decades. Uh, and it's actually a very rigorous screening process. They only take people who are capable of, of doing the hard work of holding these, this heavy equipment. The irony here is that as many of these incarcerated people are, are helping fight uh, fires in the California, they can't actually work as firefighters. They can't be hired as firefighters once they're released from prison. 
isn't there a room here for the public sector to do more? Yeah, we need to change a lot of these rules around what's called professional licensure. So there's mm. whether this California relies on tens of thousands of incarcerated people that they train as firefighters who then can't get those jobs. Or another common job that you can learn how to do in prison is how to cut hair. But in most states, the, lice, the rules to be a barber prohibit you from ever getting a barber's license if you have a felony conviction. That makes no sense. Peter, some places, uh, I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, have instituted rules that you, uh, banning the box, can't uh, asking prospective employers to check that they haven't been in prison. Uh, What results have we seen there? When employers ban the box, they give a fair shake to people to apply for a job and to later in the process disclose their record and figure out if it's relevant. And one of the reports we talk about in, in our study is we was again another study that shows that people that employers that take a chance on people get employees that are work harder, do not leave, are more loyal. So if you ban the box, you can give people an opportunity to fairly compete for a job. And that's it for this episode of What You Missed This Week. If you like this podcast, make sure to subscribe and rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. And tune in every weekday to our Daily Market Close show from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg TV and from 4 to 5 p.m. streaming on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.